Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. Coming to you a little early this week because uh, my teammate Stefan Bartholomeus and I just could not wait to crack into a dramatic weekend of motor racing around the world. Today we'll be chatting supercars, Formula One, MotoGP, Moto2, and S5000, all sorts of stuff. Um, and look, I, uh, Stefan, I know race teams don't like it when teammates get into a bit of a, a tussle, but... I kind of hope you and I get into it today. What do you reckon? Should we should we have a go? That would never happen with the two of us. I, I can't see it. I know. Okay. All right. Well, look, let's see. Let's definitely start with something I think that we are going to actually agree on, uh, and that is that, you know, you must have enjoyed that Will Brown win, not least because you actually called it last week. You said he was going to, to get a win before they left Sydney, and I sort of said, mm, I don't know, it might be tough, and uh, – he went and did it. Did that sort of? Did it make your heart feel nice and warm watching Willie B out there uh, celebrating his first win? Well, yeah, I thought we were going to start this week's pod with the audio of me saying it last week, but it's almost mm-hmm. like this result's not all about me. So, yes. yeah, <laughs> great, great result for not only Will Brown and Erebus, but I reckon the sport. And it wasn't just the fact that he won a race; it was the way he won it too. Like um, you can sort of. It's hard to do, but you can fluke a win on, on tyres or strategy or safety cars or whatever, but he uh, he won that from the front. They'd been knocking on the door for a few weeks and they cracked one. So, um, yeah, he, he led across the line two of the absolute best, two supercars champions. Uh, maybe they helped him out a bit by squabbling amongst themselves, but uh, that's, probably a, that's probably a different topic. That is probably a different topic. Yeah, look, it, it, it is a good result. I guess it sort of shows that... You know, these guys, you know, I mean, Will's a rookie in a sense of the word, but it's not an overly strict sense of the word, you know, because he has so much experience, even in other categories. And these guys know how to win. You know, he's won in Toyota 86s, Formula Ford, Formula 4. He won titles in Formula 4 and 86s. Um, You know, he's been a front runner in Super 2. These guys... It's kind of when they're out front and they've got clean air, that's where they like to be. That's where it all comes together. When the car's working for you reasonably well and all that sort of stuff, you know, like obviously winning races is very difficult and executing those race wins is very difficult. But when you've got the sort of general experience that someone like he has, that's that's kind of where they're most comfortable. And he uh, he looked comfortable out there. And I, I don't know, you wouldn't think that's the last time we're going to see that bloke in victory lane, right? Yeah, for sure. And we sort of said last week that uh, he ticked all the boxes from a driver point of view. It didn't just all come together for him in terms of pit stops and things like that. Like the team has to learn how to win and put all the pieces together. But certainly someone like Will, he's been winning his whole career in in car racing through the various categories. So um, yeah, he'd done it before in other classes and he he got one in the the big show. There was kind of so much hype about Brody coming to the season as well because he's sort of been the um, he's shown that real X factor on his way up to supercars. You know, I, I think it's impressive to see Will really taking it to him. You know, I mean, there's the smart money might have been preseason on Brody being the first of those Erebus drivers to get a to get a win on the board. Not to say that you know anyone thought Will was a dud, but like you know, he's done well to go up against kind of someone who came in with a massive reputation. Is that fair? Do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. And it's also one of the sort of perils of Super 2 because even though we talk about the fact that Will has won every step of the way, be it Formula Ford, Formula 4, Toyotas, uh, TCR, how he went and did that, 
but his Super 2 experience was a bit ropey. It was a bit up and down and it's it's difficult there to get the right equipment and the right people running the car and, and all of those sort of things. So he was one that certainly didn't go in and, and dominate Super 2. He had a couple of years where he had to sort of grind it out, got the experience, and now he's in the main game. He's he's showing his class. So uh, it's been great to see Brody and Will not just sort of matching against each other. We look at the stats and all that, but the fact that they work together so well. And we even saw that in the uh, in the Saturday race um, with a bit of team play, letting the faster car through, um, which is probably something that uh, the guys up the road could have uh, implemented on Sunday. Mm, playing nice, quite the uh, with your teammate, quite the topic of the uh, of the week. I did actually completely forget about the fact he he walked away with the TCR title in twenty nineteen. There, so thank you for bringing that up. That was you know obviously massively impressive. Uh, what he did in that category in its first year as well. Let's crack into the drama. Come on, let's do it. For anybody who missed the final supercars race of the weekend at Sydney, Sydney Motorsport Park, it was it was an absolute cracker. Um, uh, Will Brown's heartwarming rookie win was the big news, but maybe it wasn't the big news because the big news was the Triple Eight drivers arguing over second place. Winkup had second and he felt he could win if Van Gisbergen, Shane Van Gisbergen left him alone and left him to it. Shane Van Gisbergen wanted second place and felt that he could win and run down Will Brown if uh, Winkup handed it over to him. Bit of argy-bargy over the radio. I mean, Stefan, ultimately, Jamie Winkup blatantly ignored team orders to let Van Gisbergen through. They lost the race, you know, the simple question. Did Jamie do the wrong thing or was he within his rights to, to push back? Well, Jamie's obviously an incredible champion and a big part of that is that determination and that just dogged will to win. But, yeah, for me, you just can't put yourself ahead of the team in the way that he appeared to do on Sunday. Obviously, it's dangerous because we only get bits and pieces of the radio messages across the television. So to get the complete picture, you would need all of that and potentially to be in in pre-briefs and stuff like that. But I think it was pretty clear, like we heard uh, his engineer, Wes McDougal, um, tell Jamie a couple of times to let Shane through. And then we heard Mark Dutton um, do the same. And when the superior interjects, you know it's it's serious. And it turned into a negotiation that the guy behind the wheel was saying, no, we should do it this way. We should work together and, and go and chase Will. And, I mean, when you look at the, the picture in the race, yes, Jamie had pitted three laps after Will Brown, but Shane had pitted three laps after Jamie. So he was coming with all the pace. The team can see all of that. And Jamie can just see what's in front of his visor. So, yeah, for me, it was the wrong way to go. What was your What was your read? I just disagree. No, sorry, I agree fundamentally with what you're saying. Yes, you can argue it down to the fact that in the blackest and whitest terms, he could have got out the way. Shane would have walked that race win. He probably would have followed him through and come second. Sure, I get all that. But I think there's a few sort of other factors to consider. And and I kind of like the way Jamie explained it immediately after the race where he said, hey, I've only got a few races left. I'm not going to give any results up at this point. Now, the championship picture is very clear. You know, that result didn't damage Shane's title hopes at all. He's got the thing shot to pieces. Jamie isn't going to run him down. There's no external threat in the championship. If there was, if this was two years ago and Shane's fighting Scott McLaughlin or if Anton Di Pasquale had had a squeaky clean year and he was right in the title fight. If there's an external threat to the race, yes, you have to do it. You would be expected to do it. And I'm sure Jamie would absolutely do it. But that external threat doesn't exist in the title fight. It didn't exist in that race. They could kind of get away with finishing second and third. You know, they weren't, there wasn't someone coming after Shane who, you know, he had to be let through so he could get away from him. I kind of feel like, why not? Or sorry, why should he? Why should he move over? Like, he's only got a couple of races left. You know, we're going to – he felt he could win that race. You know, he felt that win 125 was on the table there. I mean, we're going back to Sydney Motorsport Park next weekend for longer races where the DJR cars have been quicker. So, you know, there's absolutely no guarantee he's going to get another shot at a win next weekend. And then we go to Bathurst where there's never any guarantees about anything happening. So maybe he looked at it going, this might be my last chance at a race win before I hang up my helmet. And if you look at how close he still got to Will Brown, I don't know. I reckon he kind of – I kind of, he kind of probably would have got there. 
and he probably would have won the race. So I don't know. Look, let, let's have a listen to, to how it sort of played out when the, when the two AAA drivers got into the press conference and were, were probed about it after the race. Um, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, we, um, we, we, we raced each other hard. So, you know, some, when you run two competitive cars, um, often, you know, you, you end up in a, in a mid-race battle, um, which is what happened. Um, so we probably didn't do each other any favours trying to get the win, but um, that's, the, that's the way it goes. Yeah, I, I, I felt like I was in the box seat to, um, to, to win the race. I had an extremely quick car and uh, we, yeah, we, we weren't racing 97, we were just racing the, the rest of the field. Um, so we pitted to give ourselves the best opportunity to try to catch Will and get the win. Um, so in my mind, it was, that was, was my race, you know, so I was just going to do everything I could to, um, to try to win the race. Yeah, I don't have much more to add. Like, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um... The racer in me did enjoy it. Like it's a fun battle. Always love racing, Jamie, and you know we always know to keep respect so and keep room. But maybe that didn't happen from other side. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Like I, you obviously want to race, but you, I hate team orders like anyone else. But just gutted that one of us didn't win the race. Like it should have been a one-two, and uh, that didn't happen. You know, so I was really strong at the end. Pitted a bit later and drove up to them pretty quick and. Yeah, I had really good car speed and, and I've had a really good car in the races. So, yeah, that's that's probably the sad part is that we didn't win the race. Um, I'm happy for Will, of course. They've had a pretty rough run of pit stops and, you know, they've been a really quick car. So happy for them. Always cool to get your first win. But uh, gutted for our team for one of us not winning. Um, I think there'll be some discussions for sure, yeah. Um, Dado did tell me to, um, to to move over, but I elected not to. So, um yeah, that, there'll be there'll be discussions over that. So, yeah, in the, when you, it all when you calm down, I guess that's probably the, that's the wrong thing. You know, I've probably done the wrong thing there, but um, it certainly wasn't the wrong thing. Um, you know, twenty laps into a race, it was uh, it was the right thing. I mean, Stefan couldn't Shane have backed off as well? Why did Jamie have to back off just because he was a little bit quicker? You don't think Jamie would have got there if, if Shane had left him alone? I just think it's it's not up to the drivers in that circumstance. I mean, we saw it on multiple occasions across the weekend where this format and people being on different age of tyre means you do come across your teammates somewhat awkwardly. Somewhat awkwardly. And um, we mentioned the Erebus example on Saturday where Brody actually phoned up the team and said, hey, I'll let Will through here. We saw in race two that um, Anton came up to Will Davison and the team said, you can race. And so it played out that way. But in this case, the team has made the call. And I just thought it was shocking that um, that Jamie didn't go with the instructions of the team. I mean, there's all that background narrative about the fact that Jamie has gone against team instructions on multiple occasions, most famously Bathurst 2014, where he was running out of fuel and wasn't backing off when he was being told to. But in that circumstance... Jamie, in his mind, he's fighting a rival and he's doing what he thinks is best for himself and the team to win the race. In this example, he's just putting his own desire for his car to win in front of what the team wants, which is the best overall result. So based on that, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And it's it's so fascinating in that context of Jamie becoming the managing director next year. And you can sort of say like, oh, the two aren't connected. He's in driver mode now. It's it's a totally different thing. But it just it sets an interesting sort of cultural tone as that shift happens. And obviously everyone's saying, oh, what, what's he going to do if, if Brock Feeney or whatever refuses to listen to instructions? But uh, the fact that that narrative there, like this just felt like it was an act of defiance by a driver who's leaving the team. But it's completely not. It's it's someone who is going to step <laughs> up into that position of authority. So um, oh, I can't imagine the uh, the level of uh, robust conversations that have that have gone on in the uh, in the sort of 24, 48 hours since. Oh, I don't think for a second Roland Dane would have liked it at all. I, I understand what you're saying, and obviously, you know, you talk about the narrative and about you know where Jamie sort of goes next. I mean, it was basically Shane Van Gisbergen. and rubbing doors with the bloke who's going to be his boss next year and Mark Dutton getting on the radio and sternly telling the bloke that's going to be his boss next year to get out of the way. I mean, that is that is awkward. That is, that is an awkward scenario to be in. But I still think that 
I, I, I still think that maybe you're overplaying the external sort of the damage that it actually did to the team. I do definitely take on board that it puts Jamie in a tough spot, yeah, next year if he does have to ask someone to move over and they say, well, hang on a minute, like apparently it's fine if you just don't do that. I, I get that. I understand all that. But I think, again, you could argue if the damage to the team was greater here, it just wasn't winning a race that they didn't actually really need to win. But – you know, if there was more going on, if there was more doing, if the stakes were higher, then he has to get out of the way. And I feel like he would get out of the way. What I found interesting was Shane Van Gisbergen saying, you know, in that in the press conference, you know, well, look, I'm just sad. It was great fun, right? I love the battle. I want to race. I hate team orders. Uh, I'm just sad that one of our cars didn't win. I just wish one of them won. Then I'd be happy, which is lip service because he could have easily just called off the fight and told Jamie. He could have got on the radio and said, hey, tell Jamie I won't fight him go after Will, let's go and get him. And I think Jamie would have done it. I think he would have had the pace. And to come back to another point you made about um, Brody getting out of the way for Will in, in Saturday's race, like that was so Will could finish third. If Brody felt he could win the race, would he have been getting on the radio and volunteering to get out of the way? I doubt it. I don't think, I don't think that would happen. So, look, I, I think that, you know, I mean, we could talk about a, a culture of defiance at Red Bull, at Red Bull Ampol Racing a week ago. Like Shane wouldn't even let the stewards tell him what to do, and they said come in for a drive through, and he said no thanks, I'll just stay out here until you take that penalty away. Obviously, you know that's a completely different situation, but I don't know. I think if you look at the overall picture, I don't know that it necessarily. I think Jamie is the team boss. If if one of the drivers did something like that, that really helped. Someone, particularly in the broader context of the championship, get a leg up on them. You could still have the conversation and go, "Hey, that was entirely unacceptable," without it necessarily becoming hypocritical. I think just because of the fact that the championship picture to me makes a massive difference, and the fact that Jamie's retiring and all that sort of stuff. You know, this that might have been his last chance. Even if he comes back and does ten more Bathurst as a co-driver. Jamie is the greatest example in the world of the fact that being a fast guy driving racing cars doesn't guarantee that you go and win Bathurst. So, you know, I, I, I really think he just felt like, hey, I could maybe win my uh, my 100, I think it's 125th. I think he's got 124 after the, the wet race the other week. So, you know, he, he would have been thinking, this is my shot and I want to take my shot. And I kind of don't have, and I love drama, you know me. I like a bit of, I like a bit of that. If he moves over, I'm not anti-team orders either. Let me make that very clear. I think that, I think eras of motor racing where team orders have been banned is stupid because it's a team sport. Let guys work as teams. We've seen how effective that is for Triple Eight over the years. You know, they don't have the good car and the bad car, so to speak. They have the good, they just have two good cars. Um, so I'm not anti-team orders. I just think in this case, Jamie was well within his rights to think he could win that race, and he probably would have. Well, you've got to admire Jamie's determination to win and his to hell with the consequences kind of attitude. But to me, it felt like a year of frustration of being shaded by Shane coming out, that he can see the finish line now. He can see he's only a couple of races away from the end, and he was just desperate to win it. And I think like you sort of – critiquing what Shane was saying after the race, but I thought he handled it really well because it was a he could have made that situation so much more explosive than it was. And the thing that's kind of gone under the radar is not only did Jamie not let him through, but the way he raced him, I'm not sure if you should race anyone like that. He was pushing him off the track on the outside at turn three into the dirt and then at turn five um, all the way. Jamie was well off um, the track, forget about where he put Shane. And like Shane was just saying on the radio, why am I being pushed off the track? Like, what's going on here? And then once yeah. there was sort of that madness with, say, nine to go, and then they did fall into line and hunted hunted Will seemingly together. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those ones we could talk about for a long time. And, yeah, d- drama is uh, is what makes this sport so juicy. But um, I still still staggered that it happened. I'm staggered that it happened as well. I totally agree with that. I just – I'm just kind of glad that it did. <laughs> I'm just glad that it did because it was kind of cool. I, I, I certainly agree with the way Jamie was racing him. It was um, it was pretty hard, and I think you can certainly pinpoint elements of frustration in that. Um, and you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Max Verstappen might have been watching that, going, "That's a great idea. You just you just open the steering and run the bloke off the road. <laughs> Let's just do it this way." So um, you know, so uh, th- there was definitely 
some very, very hard racing there, probably too hard. But in a more broader philosophical sense, I kind of think, you know, why not? Why shouldn't Jamie just go, stuff it? This is this is how we're gonna uh this is how we're gonna race. Look, let's uh let's unless you got you got anything else to add on that? No, I think it's gonna go around in circles. You've got this sort of more <laughs> of this races mentality. You've got the behind the wheel thing going, and I sort of more think of all the crew that are slaving away week on week at Sydney Motorsport Park, all the Triple Eight people back in Queensland trying to put this Camaro together, the Triple Eight people that were actually down at Challenge Bathurst running the Mercs, like all of these people, this big team, one team, yeah, and to see someone go against the team and, and cost them a win was surprising. Poor Triple Eight. How will they ever get over this? Drought in results. <laughs> one, one day, whole. They went, a, what, they went a whole weekend without winning a race. It did seem to add a lot to Barry Ryan's joy immediately post race. So that was uh, that was a good <laughs> he part, did, right? He did. He didn't miss as soon as he uh, he got into that. Look, let's go back to the start of the weekend. I have to admit that I, I had a bit of SMP fatigue heading in on uh, on Saturday morning. It was kind of hard to get excited, probably because over here in Perth. Uh, practice one started at about ten to eight in the morning. Uh, were you the same? Did you feel a little uh, a little drained of seeing the same sort of pictures pop up on the t- TV screen for the third weekend in a row? Uh, it's it's still weird. I think like for us not going to these races in, in this sort of COVID period. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I kind of I like racing beyond every week, and it's sort of there's been enough uh, differences in the formats and. And some mixtures in results and and storylines like this that um, I haven't actually minded it, but I'm sure like for for the teams and everybody going to the same racetrack and being being in Sydney, not really meant to be mingling too much. Like it's it's a hard slog for those for those people. At least last year when they were on the road and there was four events in a row, but there was two in Darwin, two in Townsville, which is a little bit of a different kind of vibe, right? Then uh, yeah, they've got there in Western Sydney at the moment, so. Yeah, I mean, and as we speak here on on Tuesday, there's a whole bunch of teams testing midweek at SMP again and, like, just the amount of work that goes into turning the cars around and and running them and then prepping them again, like, I just just feel for everybody. And you could sort of – you could really see in a few of the driver interviews and stuff even um, by Sunday that – yeah, some of those guys are kind of a bit over it, especially those ones that have uh, been sort of fighting the same dramas uh, for three weeks now. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, firstly, SMP is a brutal place to drive if your car's not working because it's just, it's going to expose all, all of those nasty things, you know, just like Phillip Island does. Um, so, you know, if you haven't been going well, I mean, it is just like bashing your head against the wall for three weeks in a row. And as you just said, then rolling out again today to go testing. Um, so sticking some old tires on the thing would be just, you'd be loving that. Um, so yeah, I noticed the same with a few of the driver interviews, guys just sort of going, yeah, well, look, we've had three weeks to try and get this thing right, and it's not right, so that's starting to get a bit uh, a bit frustrating. So, you know, a little change up next week with, with formats and that sort of stuff, but you'd reckon a few of these blokes will be pretty keen to um, to get to Bathurst in a couple of weeks and and sort of, you know, just go in a few different directions around corners. The, the one real bit of action we saw on the Saturday was a bit of um, Will Davison versus Jamie versus the pit wall. At the start of the race, there that got pretty exciting for a couple of microseconds. There, what do you reckon, Stefan? Should Will have uh, kept his boot into it and walled his mate? Well, yeah, it was an interesting one. It had sort of uh, really what was it early two thousands Michael Schumacher vibes the old uh, the old swerve off the start. Um, yeah, and again, this was one that had context, right? Because Davo had been it squeezed off on the first lap a couple of weekends in a row, and it was sort of all the talk. I think he was lining up alongside Shane then for that race on Saturday, and it was what's going to happen with those blokes. We didn't expect Davo's best mate Jamie Winkup to come and <laughs> pretty much feed him into the pit wall. So, um, yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm beating up on on Jamie too much in this podcast, but um, yeah, it it felt rude, right? Like. I was surprised there wasn't a bad sportsmanship flag or just some a bit more even commentary about the fact that that was uh, yeah it was it was aggressive. Um, what was your sort of read on it? Come on, you'll be calling him Jamie Winchcup by the end of this uh, the podcast. The way you're going, yeah, no, I, I totally, I do agree. It was it was pretty rude, and I, you know, when they interviewed Will afterwards, he said, you know, I think it was Garth Hander interviewing said, if that wasn't your best mate trying to squeeze you do you reckon you might have kept your boot in it and turned him around he said oh no you'd never do that you know your your instinct is to sort of do what's safe and all this sort of stuff but 
I don't know if I'd buy it, Will. I reckon if it was someone else, you might have kept the, uh, kept the boot into it because I think that's the actual instinct from a driver to go, no, what do you think you're doing? I'm staying right here. I'm going to keep my foot in this, uh, particularly when, you know, there's yeah, – he could have potentially then sort of jinked back to the other side and, and, and got away with it. So, yeah, it, it was definitely a, a pretty a pretty hard move and I do definitely feel like the reaction might have been, um, might have been different had there not been that relationship between – between those two guys, um, race one not exactly a, 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 a all time classic. After that, but um, things certainly came alive in uh, in race two on the Sunday. Well, morning for me. After I don't know what time zone it is anywhere anymore. Day nights, <laughs> day races, and night races and stuff. But race two certainly uh, things came alive there. How good was that battle for the podium? Yeah, well, it was pretty good for uh, for a lot of people that race, unless you were Will Davo, unfortunately, who. Uh, for a little bit, it looked like he was on for a win and then couldn't keep the tyres on it. But, um, yeah, in the end, uh, Chaz uh, nearly, nearly got there on the podium and then he got just edged out there, didn't he? 100% right about Davo. Like, you know, as you go, as you would know, you know, as a reporter, you go through, you sort of play through the scenarios as a race unfolds. How am I going to ride my race report? And, you know, for a stint and a a little bit, it was like, okay, this is going to be, you know, a classic deeper squally triumphs in an all DJR battle. And then Davo ends up about... 400 thousands on the road by the end of the race and that wasn't the story of the race at all do you think the fact he sort of that spectacular drop off in pace does that add any weight to the uh to the good car bad car scenario at djr that we kind of talked about last week it certainly adds to the to the story it, it definitely adds to the myth and the legend of it but i don't know i still don't reckon it's real like will's been good this year obviously he's third in the points and he and Anton have been pretty close until we've gotten to this run at, at SMP. Yeah. And I do think this sort of flowing track more suits Anton than, than Will. But, um, yeah, clearly Anton and that um, that 11 car have just clicked and he's, he's gone on with it. It's, it's, it's sort of hard to watch Davo at the moment a little bit. It feels like him losing that win due to that uh, electronics issue at SMP1 has actually – hurt him a bit. I mean, he hasn't won a race since 2016 and um, you can just tell he wants it so bad. Um, he didn't, yeah. you know, like sort of this time last year, he'd, he'd lost his ride and um, you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be in a winning position again, but he worked so hard to get this opportunity and then he's been so, so close and um, yeah, he just he just wants that win real bad and he's sort of yeah, he was dejected at some points on the weekend. He looks a little confused and, and whatever else that the other car's going so quick. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think he can he can turn it around. Yeah, I think so. He's ridden plenty of waves, gone, you know, ups and downs through his career so far. I think, you know, I, I, I sort of feel like the fact that, that that electrical issue, you know, followed his last shot at a win, which ended with a mechanical sort of hiccup, you know, with an airbox fire at Tickford when they were having that run of airbox fires at the uh, at the bend in 2019, I guess. Again, mm-hmm. years are like days at the moment. It all feels very, very hard to pinpoint when something was. But, yeah, that so, you know, he'd kind of – he'd had that near miss before and then he has another near miss uh, again and – um, yeah, I think that definitely it, it took its its emotional toll on him. Let, let's have a chat about Anton quickly because, like, I mean, he struggled for pace in that last race because he'd run out of tyres on, on, on this weekend. But, like, the, the raw speed of that car has just been out of control. And we saw it in qualifying again going out, you know, like a gap in the field by three tenths here and there. Like, you know, that that speed over a lap and that execution over a lap, that is – that is Scott McLaughlin areas, and I know he doesn't necessarily like that comparison, but that's that's really what it what it feels like. You talked last week about the fact that you know most of the sort of Scott McLaughlin crew is on that car. That is very much the Scott McLaughlin car. You know, through the McLaughlin era, there was always kind of this question mark over whether whether the lead DJR car was an absolute weapon or whether McLaughlin himself was the X factor that really made the difference, particularly, you know, compared to his teammate, Fabian Coulthard at the time, and compared to the rest of the field. Are we kind of seeing that answered a little bit now? Stefan, I know you don't think there's a good and bad DJR car, but are we sort of seeing how good how good that car can be when everything clicks? Yeah, I mean, Scotty had so much, so much success there in the recent past, and it was kind of like the, the old question of, how much is Scotty? How much is Penske's? 
and how much is sort of the Ludo and Aussie DJR factor. And we've seen two of the three components leave, right? There's no Penske and no Scotty. Mm-hmm. And so you've just got to put it on the table first that to see them still this competitive and now be the fastest here at SMP multiple weeks in a row is, is really impressive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe the, the guys at DJR and the crew there didn't get enough credit for what they were doing with – you know, it was easy to say, oh, all of Penske's money's sort of um, getting these results, but they've pressed on with it and they've had a pretty respectable year. I think it's it. you've got to be careful not to be disrespectful to, to Scotty Mack as well because clearly he is one of the special drivers that we've we've ever had in this championship. So yeah. Anton being so good this year I think gives context because you do need a great car, a great engineer and everything working for you to go and – put it on pole, especially by half a second like we've seen Anton doing and win races. But I don't think you should take any of the the gloss off of what Scotty did just because Anton has slotted in and he's now – he's already won the the pole champion award for the most pole positions in the year. So clearly he's he's taken on from where Scotty left off. But, um, yeah, I think uh, I think you can't take away from Scotty. What's your, what's your feeling on all that? Well, I'm definitely not taking anything away from Scotty. I've had some podcasting <laughs> – had some podcasting issues with Scotty before, so not taking anything away. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's just – I think it's a good thing to see. I think it's great to see that the team's still so competitive. And, you know, probably when the season's done and dusted, we'll have a chat about what we expect to see next year. But, you know, how good would it be that, you know, for, for Anton to to build on this result? You would expect he's going to go really quick at Bathurst again because we know Bathurst suits him. You know, he was quick that first year and when he, when he, you know, qualified third or whatever it was – um, for Erebus there. So we know he's good at that track. We know the car's good. He was on pole there earlier this year for the sprint round. So, you know, great chance for him and Tony D'Alberto to go and get a result there in a few weeks' time. And then hopefully it's the platform that they sort of build a proper title challenge next year because it would be great to see Shane pushed a little bit harder because it sort of felt like once Scotty left, there was no one to go and race Shane mm. that hard, you know, in terms of both car speed and in terms of getting the elbows out and having a bit of a go at him. Now, I know that sounds a bit ironic after what happened with Jamie Winkup on the weekend. But um, so, look, I really hope that that is what we're going to see. But I certainly agree. I don't think that – I don't think it certainly overshadows what Scott did in any way. Um, His execution on those single laps was always just impeccable. And that's probably what we haven't necessarily seen from Anton – this, this season, we're starting to see it now, but we haven't seen it all this season. Um, so there's definitely – Anton's kind of showing signs of it, but it's he's definitely not the package like Scott is yet, you know. I don't think he's quite there yet. That's that that's kind of the way I look at it, but encouraging that, we that, you know, we, we could still see these battles continuing on uh, next season or we'll see someone take the fight to Shane because that's really – that's really what we uh, what we kind of want to see. Uh, we're back at Sydney again, one more time. So sprint racing's done for the year. No more sprint races. It's all sort of mini enduros next weekend. Though I'm sure they'll feel like enduros at some point. 250k's around uh, Sydney Motorsport Park. To some drivers, they'll be sitting there going, "This is the longest race of my, of my life." At some point, um, and then off to Bathurst. So this weekend, um, kind of an odd one for for format because we've got two 250k races, two pit stops. Uh, and a set of super softs. Now, uh, I think I've got this right. They have to be used in the race, right? You can only you get two sets of super softs, and they have to be used in the race. Is that right? Yeah, one in each, one set in each race. Yeah, yeah. So, how do you use it? How where are you spending your super softs, Stefan? Uh, I feel like um, it, it probably depends where you qualify. As we sort of said the other week, with just the soft hard races, it's the first time we've seen the hard and the super soft used together. I think from what we saw earlier in the year when the Super Soft first rolled out, like there wasn't as probably as much deck as they wanted, but it also wasn't actually a heap faster than the Soft. It's just that it mm. does, it's meant to go away quicker. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like people are going to either run the Super Soft at the end or in the middle, unless in a three stint 250K race, unless you qualify poorly and you want to grab that track position early and then just hold on. Um, on a uh, on a hard to the end, but again, the fact that they've thrown this in is great because it adds that variability when we don't have uh, a different track to what we've had the last few weeks. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we may see a little more deg here, A, because of the nature of the circuit, but B, they're also, last I heard, they're going to bump up the minimum PSI to 19 for the super soft um, because particularly in Darwin, basically what was happening because, you know, in the hot weather you could bleed tyres there, you know, the 17 PSI becomes like a 13 PSI with the true pressure um, and the tyre wasn't sort of crowning and wearing as much as it as it kind of should. So I think they're going to bump up that minimum PSI, so that'll hopefully help. And also, I mean, is it is one night race, Saturday night race this weekend? It is yeah. a super night, I think. Yep. So, um, so obviously a night race means that, you can't. You're not bleeding tires anywhere near as much anyway. So the true pressure is a lot closer to what what the actual uh, minimum pressure um, allowance is. So you know, hopefully we'll see them fall off a cliff a little bit more, and it creates a bit of a strategic intrigue. Uh, let's run through a bit of the other supercars news going on. No boost wildcard for Bathurst. So no Greg Murphy or Richie Stanaway. Stefan, bit of a shame we won't see the sort of Murphy versus Ingle wildcard battle play out. Yeah, definitely. It was a great storyline that was brewing. And even though Murph initially seemed like he'd been really coerced into it by Peter Adderton, I'm sure he's disappointed that he's not going to be able to do it. For me, I'm kind of more disappointed uh, that we're not going to see Richie Stanaway have another crack. I think in with the mm. way the Erebus cars are going at the moment, it would have been cool to see him in a really quick car. But um, they've said they want to come and do it next year, so hopefully we see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we won't be seeing Ash Walsh at Bathurst either. He's pulled out of his drive with Brad Jones Racing due to uh, work or family commitments in Queensland. Basically can't go through the um, can't go through the quarantine period to get back into Queensland afterwards. Doesn't want to be away from home uh, for that often. We've seen this before. Um, Ash actually sat out the Bathurst 1000 last year because he was doing an accounting exam. So um, someone who sort of uh, puts the real world ahead of the motor racing world, which definitely makes sense. He'll be replaced by David Wall uh, in the number four BJR car. So it's a sort of a like-for-like, very experienced co-driver being replaced by a very experienced co-driver there. Uh, The Gen 3 Camaro was meant to be testing today for the first time, but that's been delayed uh, for a week. We sort of talked about the rollout of the Gen 3 stuff last week a bit, Stefan, like – that news that it was meant to test today kind of came out with Larco blurting it out on TV on Sunday night. Is the, To me, it felt like another sort of odd way to go about announcing fairly significant news. Yeah, there's a bit of uh, bit of oddity about all that. Um, you've got to love Larco's passion for it, right? He's, uh, he's talking about it on TV and I think he just uh, maybe wasn't meant to say that because um, – yeah, it's, it's curious that within 24 hours the test was cancelled and the official line on it was that there were some factors from last Wednesday's test with the Mustang that they wanted to focus on with the Camaro that they needed time to prepare. But for Laco not to have known that on Sunday when the test was coming up on Tuesday felt quite odd. I mean, you've got to understand here too that uh, as, you, as you well know from uh, over the years dealing with these things that there's so much sensitivity around new race cars like this and them not being seen before they're launched and um yeah i would guess there's there's some uh strong desire not to have anybody at qr taking photos of that thing when it's going around so i'm not sure if the fact that the date came out is related to the fact that it didn't happen but uh, it certainly got my attention either way and Camaro sort of run a little bit behind the, the Mustang in the preparation and we know that the engine program was a lot a lot more intensive on that and they had done some testing with the TA2 car. But, uh, yeah, they might uh, benefit from having a few more days or a week to, uh, to get all that right. Just to uh, also back over what we're talking about last week, expecting the Camaro to run the paddle shift. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm hearing that the next time the Mustang does run, I believe that's actually going to run the stick. So supercars have said the whole time that uh, they're going to try both, and I believe yep. that will be in the stang. Beauty. Go stick. Go get them. Get in there. Thought that's you'd like that That's one. what I want to see. That's what I want to see. So some good news. Some good news there, Stefan. Thank you very much. Well, plenty to chat about in the Formula One world. What a Brazilian Grand Prix! Did you? Uh, what was your Brazilian Grand Prix strategy, Stefan? Did you did you stay up late or did you hit the old record button and have a watch the next morning? I feel like this is uh, revealing too much of my lifestyle, but uh, 
yeah, stayed off a MotoGP on the Sunday night and then uh, watched the uh, the F1 race on a little, a wee bit of a delay on the Monday morning. So uh, got it all in, <laughs> which is the most important thing. That is the most important thing. There was some uh, some very controversial decisions over the weekend. Um, you know, officiating decisions again. We saw a lot in Sydney last weekend, and now. Uh, in Brazil. Let's start with Lewis Hamilton's exclusion from qualifying for a technical issue issue with the rear wing. We don't – details on exactly what happened have kind of been uh, reasonably thin on the ground, but, you know, sort of whatever it is. I guess we discussed this a little bit with the Chaz Mostert front guards thing last week. With technical issues, it kind of has to be a little black and white, right? I mean, I know these guys are in a mad title fight. I know that they're polarising figures with hugely passionate – fan bases so it really got blown into a big thing the fact that it sort of got dragged out and delayed overnight added to all the drama um, but I mean if a car doesn't pass scrutineering it's tough to do anything but disqualify it right yeah I think it had some similarities to the Chaz stuff we we're talking about last week even though they don't seem to use cable ties to hold things together in F1 I don't know why it's uh it's normally it's pretty good I didn't break on <laughs> Lewis's DRS but uh, yeah it felt the same in terms of um there appeared to be no real advantage. Like the uh, the gap between those wing planes when the DRS is open is meant to be 85 mil and they were 0.2 mil out on one one edge of it. So um, it doesn't look like something you'd engineer in deliberately and the team was claiming damage, something happened during the session. Um, clearly it wasn't why that car was so fast in a straight line. We saw that on Sunday that uh, that thing was an mm. absolute uh, top fueler down the straights regardless. So... Yeah, even if it's down to down to something external going on during that quality session that put it put it out of uh, out of whack, you've still got to uh, you got to throw it out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I look forward to you uh, referring to Lewis as Lewis Lamatima Hamilton from uh, from now on in his in his top fueler. Um, the the whole sort of Max touching the back of the car. Uh, thing in the park for me. That's a lot less clear cut because, you know, it's not like, okay, well, the car is technically illegal even if by not much. That's that's a whole different sort of question. What's what's your take on that? I mean, these blokes these blokes are very, very rich, but 50,000 euros is still a bucket load of coin to give up for uh, having a bit of a fiddle with the back of a car. Oh, I thought your response to this would be that I can touch every car in Parc Fermé for a million euro. You beauty. I thought you'd be straight <laughs> down there having a feel of all of them. <laughs> But uh, yeah, what, what a amazing storyline! Like you can never, uh, you never know what to expect going into a weekend of motor racing, and certainly this stuff uh, came out of the blue. But um, I think they had to send a message that it was not what you should be doing, and I'm surprised that that Max thought that that'd be okay. But in the end, uh, thankfully, the the racing on uh, on Sunday kind of then overshadowed everything. Um, we've, we've seen Max and Lewis get into these head-to-head battles this year, finally, that we've wanted to see for, for several years. Um, this one included another with both off the track. What, uh, what was your view of that, uh, that, uh, that moment when they were both well wide of the, the racetrack? Look, I want to see hard racing. I think it's good. And, you know, trying to hang someone wide is like the oldest trick in the book, right, particularly when you're actually executing the pass. This was kind of the, the wrong way around because uh, Max was actually defending on the inside. But, like, he, he just ran him off the road. You can't argue that, you know. It's just very difficult to see it in any other way, the fact that he opened the steering, he made no attempt to go around the corner, and he ran him off the road. And it seems to play in to – um, this philosophy of Max is that I either win the corner or we crash or you just give up. You know, you're going to give up or we're going to shunt. That's how this thing's going to play out. And, you know, we saw it at Imola earlier this year where he pushed Lewis wide. He sort of got away with that because it was wet and he could argue, well, i got a bucket of understeer and I had nowhere to go. Uh, we saw it at Monza where he did it to Lewis on lap one and Lewis did yield and then he tried to do it to Lewis again and well, Lewis sort of, they went at it again and Lewis didn't yield and they shunted because, you know, Max on the outside went, no, no, I'm going to hold my ground. Um, and in some ways, Lewis could have probably done the same thing. And then Max would have got a penalty for opening the steering and driving into him, you know. What's interesting is that we saw a very similar thing happen in Austria this year with Norris and, and Perez and there was a penalty for that. I think was it Austria like back in 2016-ish with Nico Rosberg where there was penalties flying around. I can't remember the details. I probably should have looked it up before we recorded, but this just popped in my head that there was something similar where, you know, someone makes no attempt to go around the corner 
And that's not allowed because you're actually, you know, you're definitely trying to gain an unfair advantage uh, there. And I think the fact that we saw, to me, what was even more sort of brazen was the weaving on the straight, you know, trying to break the toe, which is number one no-no in motor racing. You know, you can change directions once and that's it. After you've done it, that's where you're going to stay. Unless you're well clear, then you can move back out to the racing line. But that absolutely wasn't the case. And it just shows that max attitude, which is I don't care what the rules are. I'm just going to, you know, if you're going to try and go past me, I'm going to make it really, really difficult. And obviously you got a warning for that. Um, and he had to eventually yield because Lewis was just so much quicker. Um, but I, I, I sort of... I can live with it not being a penalty because there was no contact and all that sort of stuff, but not even being investigated, you know, and the fact that Michael Massey came out afterwards and said, yeah, look, it was pretty touch and go and it could have been a black and white flag or this or that, but we decided not to investigate it. That just doesn't stack up for me at all because how can it almost be not allowed but not even worthy of an investigation and going and digging out the camera angles and having a look at what Max actually does with the steering wheel because the camera cut to the rear view at the sort of critical moment which would tell the story of how hard Max was really trying to go around that corner and I'm guessing it would tell a story of him not trying very hard at all um you know how it wasn't even worthy of of looking at you know given what's what's going on in the in the championship even if you do decide hey we're going to let fair racing go or let sorry let hard racing go even if it's not as fair as it could be in a bit like you know in a grand final you expect the the umpiring to sort of be a bit more relaxed to let guys have at it a bit more um if that's what they want to do that's fine but i think it's still the incident deserved being looked at and, you know, it all comes back to consistency. And I know, you know, one of Massey's big mantras is every incident is different and we will judge every incident differently. And that's fine. There's merit to that. Absolutely. But at some point when you have almost identical incidents being treated completely differently, you know, one gets investigated and there's a penalty handed out and one is just completely let go without even an investigation. I don't know. That doesn't, it doesn't pass the pub test. For me, what's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, they've they've just got themselves into this awkward mess with like the tarmac runoffs. Obviously, don't help. Yeah, um, and, and the size of the cars—they're just really awkward to to race each other. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I was encouraged by the fact that in Austria they sort of laid down the law about you can't just drive people off the off the track. And the weird thing about yeah. that was Sergio Perez was the one that got driven off. And uh, Christian Horner back in Austria had said it shouldn't have been a penalty, um, even though his car was the one that got done. So clearly there was yeah. no consensus in the F1 sort of community about uh, what is isn't, what is and isn't right back then. But, yeah, the fundamental, if you can drive someone off the racetrack and the key rule is that you can't leave the track and gain an advantage, well, it means you can never be passed because if you just push the other bike off the track, he can't pass you. Like, uh, yeah. goodness knows what would have happened if Lewis had actually been able to get around the outside of of Max when they were both five metres off the racetrack, um, which, yeah. like you said, Jamie and Shane found themselves out there and their teammates. But, um, yeah, clearly on the weekend, they, they hid behind the let them race sort of mantra because they just mm-hmm. didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to be involved in this title fight, which from a – a box office point of view was sort of the best outcome, but for anyone trying yeah. to understand what the rules are and apply it consistently over the season, it just doesn't wash at all. Yeah, and I don't think – I'm not saying that, you know, you throw Max out of the race for it. Like you kind of just, you know – but he probably should have been forced to hand over that position and the, and the result would have been what it was anyway. So it didn't have to have huge a huge effect on the title fight because the outcome was just what the outcome was kind of always – gonna be but yeah i totally agree it's just and like i say we've seen it before and even and i know the silverstone thing was highly controversial um but that was still an example and not just the shunt itself there but the whole the way max was driving squeezing lewis down uh you know earlier in the lap and all that sort of stuff he just his mentality is i i keep track position or we crash they're the they're the outcomes and sweeping across the front you know there's absolutely no part of his thought process that seems to go into maybe I should play a long game here. And, like, you can bring that back to even the Park Fermi thing, you know. I think sometimes he doesn't necessarily have a long-term view of what's going to yield the best outcome to a situation. It's like, I think this wing's bend, this wing is bending, so I'm going to go and try and bend it. Even though they're designed to bend, 
if they are a flexi wing, designed to bend under like tons of downforce force, more than you're going to get by giving a little tweak with your fingers. So what a low percentage thing to go and do in the middle of a title fight where the FIA might have gone, hey, you're going to the back of the grid or you're losing your points from, you know, whatever's like just – I don't get it. I don't get why why you would do that. And I guess Max is still young and he's still got a lot to learn. Forget because he's been in Formula One for so long because he started when he was when he was so young. Um, so they're just they're just little signs of I don't know if immaturity is the right word, but um, you still sort of and that's where Lewis is obviously a, just a lot better rounded race car driver uh, in that in that kind of um, in that respect. And you know maybe that's going to make the difference at some point in this World Championship battle. The thing is with car speed, it's so up and down. And when you think one's going to go well, it doesn't. And when you think the other one's going to go well, it doesn't. So the one thing it is, is it's brilliant. I mean, it's great theatre and it's great drama. And, you know, that's that's what I do love to see. So, again, I'm not saying throw the book at Max, but I think if you look at, like, this pattern of the way he drives, there's a lot of consistency to how he just refuses to yield on a corner even when he's been completely and utterly beaten and I love a bit of dogged determination but at some point it's too much and just before we leave F1 obviously the 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 big sort of headline really was that that Lewis had come from from the back in at the start of the sprint race and then from 10th in in the Grand Prix and won do you feel that it's rightly heralded as one of the the great drives or was it a fish in a barrel exercise with the amount of straight line that that had like does he deserve full credit for that being an incredible drive I think it's a Pretty incredible drive. Like he said himself afterwards that it felt like his first win. So when you've won a hundred odd races, that sort of really means something. I think a bit of that played into the fact that, like you know, we, we've seen, you know, these guys are both villains and and heroes to different sets of fans, and both very polarizing figures. And we've seen that you know when they were racing in Belgium and Holland, obviously Max is the hero and everyone's booing Lewis. You know, it switches around when they go to Silverstone, and then. But in Brazil, like it's like Lewis is Brazilian, you know, and he stopped and got the flag. There was actually a really adorable moment where he stopped and got the flag from a marshal, and this was the benefit of watching it on record on Monday morning. He stopped and got the flag from the marshal, and as the marshal runs back to his marshal mates that are sort of standing over the thing, they're, they're all celebrating like this bloke had just kicked the like the winning goal of the World Cup final. Like they're all up in arms, just having the most amazing time. It was uh, it was kind of cool to see. But that's how much they love Lewis and the crowd you know, went crazy for Lewis and booed Max, you know? So it's kind of, mm. it's, I think that played into the fact that Lewis enjoyed it so much because, you know, he was obviously a massive, always, was always a massive Eton Centre fan. He was kind of living his Eton Centre dream a little bit. I think it was worth the 5,000 euro fine he caught for unbuckling his belts on the, on the cool down lap. But look, I think any time that, any time that you get sent to the back of the grid, rightly, uh, and then you, you know, the engine penalty again, you can't argue that, you know, you've got to serve that. I think the fact that he had to make up those spots over and over again, it's pretty good. This is Formula One, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's hard to win. And there's other guys in good cars out there, as we've seen. Uh, he, he got a strategic free kick over Valtteri Bottas and all that sort of stuff. You expect all that to kind of play out. But, yeah, good win. I mean, it, it, it passes the couch test. I sat there and went, this is awesome. How good's this to watch? You know, do you agree? Yeah, and I think like over the journey, we've seen like Nico Rosberg and then now Valtteri being pretty competitive against him on Saturdays, but on Sundays, Lewis just finds a way. And it, yes, he was blazing past people with the big donk for the big day and the DRS wide open, but um, you've still got to set the pass up and the DRS kind of gives back what you lose in the aero wash through the through the back sections. So yeah, you've still got to work really hard to get yourself in the right position to make those moves. So, yeah, I think full credit to him. Hey, we have a uh, – we – well, when I say we, as Australians, we have a Moto2 world champion, Remy Gardner. He made it pretty tough there. It was a tense old <laughs> season finale, uh, but he got it done. Some lovely footage of Wayne Gardner's reaction and all that sort of stuff. Did you, uh, did you enjoy that one, Stefan? Yeah, it was it was a great moment, and for sure we should say we. Everyone should uh, should enjoy the the journey with Australian sports people like that. He only had to finish thirteenth, but as you said, it was it was more intense than perhaps we'd expected. And um, 
the fact that there was that that red flag off the initial start and he had to go through two starts, which is the big danger of being taken out really by someone else, was was nerve wracking too. But for them, for the gardeners to be only the second pair of father son to to both win a world championship behind Kenny Roberts Jr. and Senior, that's uh, that's an immense achievement. And uh, Remy, it's sort of been a, a slow burn for him. He's been in Moto Two there for multiple years, grinding away. He said some great things afterwards about. Uh, years of suffering and uh, there were so many points where he thought he wasn't good enough so yeah to see that that rewarded not only the talent rewarded but all the determination and hard work that it took to get there was uh, was fantastic yep absolutely uh sticking with two wheels jack miller is gonna come and race down under he hasn't made a race here for the last couple of years because there's been no Australian MotoGP event because of COVID-19, but he's signed on to come down, head to The Bend in South Australia, Stefan's homeland, uh, to, yeah, for the final round of the Australian Superbike Championship. That's um, that's kind of cool. There's something old school about someone sort of going, you know, I don't, I don't care that I'm a MotoGP superstar. I just want to go race some bikes at home. Yeah, it's, it's very Jack Miller, isn't it? He just, just wants to go racing, and it's obviously great for Australian superbikes and that whole community. So, um, yeah, he got another podium there on the weekend. He sort of had a pretty solid year in fourth in the World Championship, and those Ducatis are, are amazing at the moment. So you'd hope that um, he'll keep himself uh, healthy over the off-season and then have a, a big lash at a championship next year. Uh, S5000, there is a couple of international drivers making their way down under for the Tasman Series, the Tasman Series that has no races in New Zealand, which still does my head in a little bit. But XF1 driver uh, Roberto Meri and uh, um, Japanese GT driver Yoshi Katayama are coming out to join the field for Sydney uh, Motorsport Park this weekend. And then Mount Panorama, still looking forward to seeing those things at at Bathurst or watching them on TV, unfortunately for me, but seeing those things at Bathurst in a couple of weeks. A bit of general motorsport news. Uh, there's been a pre-COVID study from Ernst & Young that says the motorsport industry is worth $8.6 billion to the Australian economy. And remarkably, I think about an eighth of that is what Noons pays you to write those uh, V8 Sleuth books. Books, boots, books, isn't it, Stefan? Well, most of that is just the, the tax I applied when I found out I had to work with you on this deal. So uh, <laughs> danger money. <laughs> Danger money, it definitely, definitely is. Hey, who's your uh, who's your Castrol star of the week this week? Well, last week we went with Remy Gardner, so I guess he's uh, he's done his dash. But uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, I think Valentino Rossi. Um, there's not much more you can say about him that that hasn't been said. But he's been amazing for motorcycle racing over such a long time. When you think that he debuted in the in the World Championship in one two fives back in '96, like Max Verstappen wasn't even born then. It's just an incredible mm. um, journey that he's had and uh, it was nice to see him not only bank a top 10 there at the end, but I th- thought they did all the celebrations and stuff really well. Um, I'm sure there were some people in F1 going, how come with these motorcycles on the slowdown lap you get like a 1,000 people touching all these bikes before they've uh, been <laughs> scrutineered? But uh, parking all that, uh, yeah, what a special moment, what a special weekend. Yeah, they certainly do the theatre very well in two-wheeled land and Valentino Rossi, what an absolute legend. I'm going to go, I thought about, you know, Will Brown, I thought about Lewis Hamilton, both would have been worthy recipients, but I'm going to go with uh, Tom Moore, uh, Will Brown's race engineer at Erebus. He kind of got dragged into the whole, you know, David Reynolds being out of form because Al McVeigh wasn't on the road last year narrative. He was sort of the stand-in engineer for Reynolds and I guess, you know, they struggled with that car and it led to, the fairly ugly divorce of, of Dave and Erebus. Um, but, you know, clearly the bloke did something right because he was given a proper shot at the big seat uh, with Will Brown for this year by Barry Ryan and, and, and now he's a, he's a race-winning engineer. So, um, so you know, that's a, that's a big moment uh, for a young bloke um, and kind of adds to the, the really likeable sort of look and feel of, of, of Erebus Motorsport. Uh, at the moment, which is not something we necessarily would have said off the back of inside line and all that sort of stuff, but you know they're the they're the fun team again, uh, and yeah, good on Tom for um, for banking that that race win. Look, I reckon we'll leave it there. There's been plenty to talk about already. There'll be plenty to talk about next week, I'm sure as well. So we'll be back then. Don't forget to subscribe and review to the podcast. All those things that sort of um, that sort of make us feel good about ourselves and get us motivated to get here and 
chatting through it all and um, let's have another crack at it again next week. Stefan, thanks for joining me. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticket Tech. Supercars. Unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.